Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. while we listen to the Skip Wrestling Podcast. Kind of awkward to people doing a specific dance while listening to a podcast where there's no music, but I still want to thank Chubby Checker for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. This is the first Stick to Wrestling of 2022. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Uh, before I get rolling, I have people to thank. Uh, very generous contribution to the show. Mike Leslie says, thank you for the great podcast. It makes one hour of walking my dog in a Minnesota winter somewhat tolerable. Do dogs go for one hour walks in Minnesota? I have no idea, but thank you, Mike. Also, I want to thank Wade Fow, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He says he really enjoys going through the archives of our podcast. By the way, you can go through the archives of all, I think, 186 podcasts, uh, Stick to Wrestling podcast. The show has evolved a lot, and I think you'll have fun seeing how it, it has evolved. Uh, Wade says his peak fandom was 88 through 89 and then 95 through 99, but he still loves hearing about all the history. Well, Wade, we're glad to provide it to you. And lastly, but certainly not least, Rob Reigns, don't call me Roman, says thank you for doing such great work and giving me something to look forward to each Friday. I still think Austin Idol could have taken the Hulk Hogan spot. And he says, LOL, probably not, but still a huge fan. Rob, Austin Idol is one of those guys, like you hear this a lot about wrestlers. Oh, he was happy just staying in Portland and not being a major national star. And rarely do I buy that. Austin Idol is the exception. I think he was happy just hanging out in, in Memphis and Continental. I think after he left Mid-Atlantic in 1982, he wrestled exclusively in either the Memphis promotion or the Southeast promotion, and then Indies here and there, uh, aside from one trip to Japan. So uh, you know what? If you don't want to be Hulk Hogan, you're not going to be Hulk Hogan. So that's all there is to it. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, we don't have ads, we don't have sponsors, you know, we're basically doing this for free. Go on PayPal and send a donation to Pro Wrestling Archives at gmail.com. That is me. Now, with that, I want to bring our, our guest, Sean Heimberger. Sean, thank you for coming on again. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate you having me. And to Wade, I apologize for my previous appearances as you rush through the Stick to Wrestling Archives. <laughs> he's done. Don't listen to him. Sean's done a good job, which is why he's back. I believe for the third time. I think this is the third time. All right. Excellent. So let's hope I can rack up another unsuccessful visit here for you, John. <laughs> There's no such thing as successful or unsuccessful here in stick to wrestling. We're just having fun, hanging out, talking wrestling. And what we're going to be talking about for the next 60 or so minutes our results from January, 1982. Let's go back to the Wayback machine. And we will start with a show that took place January 9th, 1982 at the old Boston Garden. And I was lucky enough to have been to the show. Not that anything really spectacular happened, but I'd love to go back 40 years and go back to the old Boston Garden. Uh, Charlie Fulton beat Pete Darty in the opener. Just so everyone knows, including you, Sean, the openers at the old Boston Garden 
were, I mean, they were so tedious. They were so bad. Nothing happened. It was two wrestlers just killing time until everyone found their seat. So pretty much it was the preliminary version of Larry Zabisco wrestling Larry Zabisco. <laughs> that is a good way of putting it, except Larry Zabisco at least got a little bit of heat. These guys didn't. <laughs> Laurent yeah, Susie. I, I always I'm sorry, Larry. go ahead. I always like Larry's gimmick. I, I love that. I remember being at uh, one of the great American bashes in Washington, and he's wrestling in the first match, and they are screaming at him, Bruno, Bruno, and he gets out and goes, they're screaming Larry sucks, and he jumps out and grabs the mic from the uh, the ring announcer at the Capitol Center was Marv Brooks, who did the Bullets PA and for the Capitals. And he goes, Washington sucks. I hate you people. It brought the place down. He really was a good interview in the 80s, especially when he wanted to be. Unfortunately, the bell has to ring at some point. That's Laurent Susi yeah, defeats Jose Estrada in 13 and a half minutes. Laurent Susi, first of all, he got tapes of his matches from me like 20, 25 years ago. A really nice guy. He was a three-time All-American at the University of Wisconsin who tried his hand at pro wrestling. And, I mean, no offense to Laurent. He just never got the hang of it. Have you ever seen a match from this guy? Have you heard of him, Sean? Uh, he was on the 1980 Olympic team that did not go to Moscow. Now, is that real? Because everyone was I believe, on that Olympic I believe team. it is. I believe that's the case. I, I, cause I, I looked it up before when I, before doing a, the, the little bit of research for this show, I believe that's real. Okay. Um, cause he, I mean, and I don't, and I don't even th think, uh, cause a Wisconsin had a pretty high level wrestling team at the time. I think they had another guy that made that team and, and Lee Kemp. And, uh, I believe that's true. But, I, but uh, the funny thing is, do you remember when the after mags and what, I think it was the wrestler where each month they would have introducing fill in the oh, blank yeah. where they would, he was in there one time. And I remembered that, but ever remember seeing him on the syndicated WWF shows. I mean, I I've seen him wrestle on like the MSG cards and all that. Now that we have so much access to this stuff, but I don't ever remember seeing him on the Allentown shows. Uh, I'm pretty sure he made both championship wrestling and all-star wrestling because I, I knew who he was like before I saw this match. He actually made the cover of one of the Kiter magazines, not the whole cover, but he got his picture there. And yeah, it just never worked out for him. But I mean, back to the Olympics, I, I swear there's 100,000 people in the United States that were going to represent the United States in that Olympics, and 90,000 of them must be wrestlers because you know, Kerry Von Erich was going to be on the shot put team. Jesse Barr was going to be on the wrestling team. I mean, just off the top of my head. Yeah, well, and that's because it's real easy because how do you verify it? Right. And, and, and so much, so many of those sports didn't necessarily have Olympic trials for that whole thing, or they had it in hindsight. I kind of, from what it's, from what I'm understanding, it, it is legitimate, but there's also, it is wrestling. So it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't, but the, what I looked up on was an amateur site and he appeared right there with Brad Rangans, who was also on that team. And my understanding is Brad Rangans helped train Laurent Susie, but I mean, you know what, the more I think about it, like Kerry Von Erich was brought up in that pro wrestling environment. So of course he was going to be on the track team, but you know, Laurent Susie didn't grow up in that environment. So I'm, I'm kind of inclined to think it's true. He would have been on that team. No, I, I, I believe it's the case. I'm, I'm open to it not, but I believe it is. 
Okay. Jesse Ventura defeats Dominic DiNucci in a typical, uh, it was Jesse's debut in Boston. He's against a guy with some credibility, but you know who's going to win this match. And uh, middle of the show or towards the end of the show, they announced that next month, Jesse Ventura gets his title shot against Bob Backlund. Well, you can't argue with that. After such a deserving victory over a washed up Dominic <laughs> DiNucci, it, it, it's, but you're, but it's exactly what you said. You give a guy that has name credibility, but yet isn't a significant threat to beat the guy. So it makes sense how they did it to me yeah. anyway. But that was a real, it was just the way they did things. I, you look at it in hindsight and, and even at the time when I, I was a kid, you know, during these times and, and it just didn't make sense. Some of this stuff, when you looked at it compared to real sports. And that was kind of one of the you. giveaways. It's like, what real sport would do this that way? You beat one guy, and it's not even a top contender, and you get a championship match. No real sports do this this way. No, they don't. Um, this is after Ventura you know, beats up Steve King or whoever else on TV, comes to Boston, wrestles Danucci, who, like you said, not even in the top 10. and But it worked. I mean, they, they didn't have to have Ivan Putsky or Tony Atlas or whoever do a job, which is like, okay, you know, next month is Bob Backlund, Jesse Ventura. It was just accepted as the way it was. Exactly. Now, by the way, these matches are not in order, just so everyone knows. I don't remember the exact order, but it's not this. The WWF tag team titles, Rick Martell and Tony Gurria defeat the champions, Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito by disqualification. Sean, this was not on the material I sent you coming into the show. Pat Patterson was the special guest referee for this match, and he disqualified Fuji and Saito, and they beat the crap out of him after the match. They tore off his shirt. They, like, stomped on him. And Gurria and Martel come out to make the save, and they can't make the save, and Patterson gets beat up some more. It was some good stuff. I mean, it it was the old Boston Garden. People got excited. I'm, and you didn't send me that, but I will add, this is just a guess on my part. I'm going to guess this probably led to a six-man tag team match the next card with Patterson and Grian Martel against Fuji Saito and likely Lou Albano. Lou Albano was in on the action attacking Patterson, and your guess was 100% correct. They, when they announced in the next month's show, it was Pat Patterson in the six-man going after revenge. Uh, just to me, that that when when you as soon as you told me that Pat Patterson was a guest referee, I kind of had a suspicion that this is the avenue we were going. I think sixteen-year-old me had that one figured out coming in. I mean, the <laughs> WWF for all of its 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 good points. I mean, it was so formulaic and so predictable. Yet, uh, sixteen thousand people came out for the show. Just because you see it coming doesn't mean it's not entertaining. Exactly. And you shouldn't have, I think in the late nineties, the wrestler wrestling did swerves for the sake of doing swerves. And I'm kind of glad they, they weren't doing that yet. Let's put it that way. Too much of any kind of formula is too much. And (laughs) if you're swerving for the sake of swerving, it's, it's then you're watching for the swerve and you're not watching the product. Right. A hundred percent. Correct. Next up, we have Tony Atlas versus the masked executioner. Um, I don't know if you know about this, Sean. The executioner was kind of a running gag 
Sometimes it was Baron Mikkel Cicluna. Sometimes it was Ron Shaw. On this night, it was Hans Schroeder. And it just couldn't be more obvious. He had the blonde hair sticking out of the mask. He had Hans Schroeder's tattoos and Hans Schroeder's body. I'm surprised he didn't have Hans Schroeder's boots. I believe it's been 20 years, but I, I think he did have his boots. I, I'd like to know I, if I could ever like talk to a guy like Ron Shaw, who I believe is still with us. I'd be like, you know, what? I'd ask him what the deal was. I hope he would share that with me at some point if I could ever find him. That would be pretty. I mean, I, I would imagine that just makes sense. You know, it, it, you, it's a nice generic name. It sounds quotation marks scary. And uh, you can get any of your big guys on the roster to play that role. It, it's easy. It, it, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. It, the executioner is scary. No one knows who he is. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody knows Baron Mikel Cicluna, the heel version of Dominic DiNucci. Exactly. So, so the, it, it, you can have a little more, hey, this guy's a real top contender. He's been rolling up big wins in Omaha, Nebraska, and he's coming here to take care of Tony Atlas. Yeah. I mean, like I said, even. You know, me and my friends in our mid-teens could see, see that it was a different executioner every week. And it wasn't just, just those three guys either. Uh, to, by the way, Tony Atlas was over like crazy in the WWF at this point. WWF Intercontinental Championship match. Pedro Morales defeats Killer Khan in 13 minutes and 20 seconds. I actually re remember this match being decent, despite the fact that Killer Khan had been in the WWF since like early fall 1980 and it was time for him to go home. We like you killer, but time to go home. Well, he, well, it wasn't generally the tradition here was you'd stay for a year and you were on your, and then have a nice day. As usually, a usually it was a little less than a year. It was like nine, 10 months. Then killer probably well overstayed his welcome. Of course, some of that was probably the Andre thing probably bought him. Some Definitely. Time. Yeah, and you know, once you get through with the feud with Andre, you're having competitive matches with him. Why not throw him in there with Killer Khan? I get it, but it's time to go home. Adrian Adonis defeats a uh, local Fred Marzino in three minutes and fifty eight seconds. Pat Patterson was scheduled to wrestle Adrian Adonis, but he got so beat up that Fred Marzino had to step in for him. That makes sense. I mean, that's how you can get over a squash match. As being, oh, well, we scheduled him for a good guy. They were so desperate because of the situation earlier. We had to get anybody that would take him on. Here's local Fred Marzino who's going to step up and defend the local honor of the Boston Garden. Stone of Mass's own Fred Marzino, who I used to have an email relationship with. I wish I still did. He was a good guy. And finally, like I said, this was not the last match of the night. Bob Backlund defeats Greg Valentine in 23 minutes and 10 seconds. I also remember this being a good match, but the WWF was weird. I mean, Greg Valentine had his first uh, match at Madison Square Garden against Backlund October 23rd. Now, here we are, I mean, almost three months later, and Korea, it's not Korea, <laughs> Valentine already has a new feud lined up. He has suplexed Pedro Morales outside the ring and we're clamoring to see that match instead of this match. So not good timing on Boston's behalf. Well, well John, you, you mentioned about that. This was not the last match. The WWF, I remember the first ever card I ever went to at, the, at a big arena. And I was amazed that Backlund would defend the title right before intermission. And I've always been told red, et cetera, that, 
that was because they didn't want the main event problems uh, with Bruno or Morales. They just got used to putting it in the middle of the card, except for New York, where they sometimes would pull the time limit curfew thing. I can't remember the uh, the only time I know of that they did the the curfew thing was uh, Bruno Sammartino and Pedro Morales at Shea Stadium. And I mean, I was talking about this on on Facebook earlier. The WWF had a thing where, you know, Madison Square Garden at Madison Square Garden was run by people in a union. And if you were in this union at 11 o'clock, you started getting uh, time and a half. So, you know, they made sure that the, the show was over by 11. They didn't want to be paying, you know, 150% of wages. That makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, they, who, who wants to do that if you're big business? Exactly. So just, you know, and that way you also occasionally get out of doing a finish uh, slash having someone do a job. Before I get to the next show, I forgot to plug the Facebook group. If you like this show, join the Facebook group. It's that simple. Also, you want to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam. Follow the guy who has Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs. If you follow me on Twitter, today you learned what my four favorite albums were that begin with the letter E, for example, the one that was hard for me to leave off was Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story, but that's how that thing went. And I don't always stick to wrestling, but usually it's wrestling related on Twitter. So follow me, please. I've got like 1,200 followers, and damn it, I want more. Now, off to Atlanta. Uh, New Year's Day, 1982. The opener is Jimmy Garvin defeating the French angel Frank Morell. Jimmy Garvin's career is in neutral at this point, doing the opener in Atlanta. Yeah, and he's coming up on the change to gorgeous Jimmy, correct? This comes yeah. up in Florida comes within up the in year. Florida. You know, and, and the one thing, and this is looking back now, we're you know, 40 years. I remember, I'm going to date myself as a sexist kid and probably a sexist human being. There was two or three sensational pictures of the original Precious with Garvin in Florida. And I've always wondered, what the hell ever happened to her? Because I thought, my God, this woman is gorgeous. This is perfect for wrestling. And she like, poof, gone. Here comes Jimmy Garvin's cousin. I think what happened, and this is me just doing an educated guess here. I don't remember seeing her with Garvin on TV. Not that I saw everything from Florida in 1982 because I no longer got it on cable. My guess is they just hired a model to do that photo shoot for the after magazines, but I could be wrong. <laughs> that would be sensational. Yeah. that I, I remember those pictures and I'm like, this woman is gorgeous. And then she's gone. And here comes what turned out to be Jimmy Garvin's cousin, I think, is what Valerie French was, I think. Uh, that was his cousin. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know what, not time for me to sound like a sexist woman objecting or objectifying pig. <laughs> I am ashamed. She was absolutely gorgeous. And I just never picked up on it when Jimmy was in world class. Yeah. I, so, but you know what, John, sometimes that will really get ourselves in trouble. Some, and some people photograph better than others. Some people look great on photos or on television, and you see them in person, and it's a significant drop. And there's others that are the other way around. They don't photograph as well, and you see them in person and say, what a knockout. So 
that doesn't surprise me. 99% of the time when you see someone live and not on television, they don't look anywhere near as good. Ironically enough, the number one person for me with that was Jimmy Garvin's real-life wife, Precious, who I saw her on TV. I'm like, ah, she's all right. And then I saw her live when I got to talk to Jimmy for a few minutes. I was like, oh, my God, she is gorgeous. It does happen that way. I, I There was a local sports woman who I'm not going to name uh, a few years ago who on television I thought was attractive but not a knockout. And then I saw her at a ball game. Was I thought, my God, no, she's clearly about three times as attractive as she appears to be on TV. So it does happen. Shout out to my buddy, former guest and future guest, Dave Flaherty, who posted a picture of him with Randy Savage and Elizabeth. And my God, Elizabeth was every bit as jaw dropping in this picture, which she was not prepared for. Like she would be prepared to be on TV. And I mean, just a 10 out of 10. I can't imagine. So, I mean, just, you could just tell that that woman for whatever her background was that she just genetically exuded beauty. I'm turning into Vince here. My God. Exuded <laughs> beauty. <laughs> oh man. Kevin Saul. Let's go. Ron Bass defeats Jerry Oates. Ron Bass is going to be getting a bigger push in Georgia. He's going to win the national championship at some point in 1982. Never really much of a Ron Bass fan. I got to be honest with you. Thought his team with Black Bart was pretty cool, but I I never saw that he really got pushed to the moon in Florida too. And yeah. when I actually saw him, I like, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really feeling this. I saw him on cable when he won the national championship, and I was just like, you know, I, I didn't see him at that level, and I also didn't see him at, at the level of push. He got in Florida. I thought when the WWF brought him in, like, 87, 88, like, that's right around where he belonged. Well, with the Brutus Beefcake Spur thing, that was... Yes. I always loved those, with the big (laughs) X on the screen. Loved it. Uh, You know, I haven't told the story in forever. When I was 10, I think, or 11, when I was 10, they did the big X on the screen thing when Baron Von Raschke had the claw on someone. I tried to look around the X. That's how smart I was. Well, you know, I got up. I, and tried I, I, to I probably around. would have done the same thing. The, the X that I did was again the claw because Baron Von Rasky here was before my time. But when Mulligan was here as a heel, they did the same thing. Yeah, and you could see around the corners, and and you kind of like maybe if I stand on a certain angle, I could see around like it's a three dimensional <laughs> X. Exactly, and you know what? I I always thought that was a great idea. Because whatever was going on behind that X was not as interested, interesting as they made it look by, by censoring it out. Building up curiosity of something that really is not that significant. The, that's the thing about wrestling. It's all about the delusion, if you would, or at least spawning your imagination. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, who does not look like the Kevin Sullivan of the WWF anymore. This guy has gone into heavy training. Defeats El Gran Apollo. I was always a fan of El Gran Apollo, but he never really got over in the States. He did well in Puerto Rico. We all know know that Kevin Sullivan went on to be a, a national star in wrestling. El Gran Apollo got a little bit of a push in Florida, if I remember. He did. He, uh, he won and, the TV title. Right. I, I do remember that, but I don't remember much of him outside of Florida. 
And, and of course, this is where Kevin Sullivan is like jacked up bodybuilder Kevin Sullivan, right? This was the peak of jacked up bodybuilder Kevin Sullivan. Okay, well, and, and this makes a lot of sense that Kevin Sullivan uh, got the Duke on this one. Absolutely. I've really been watching too much Vince. Got the Duke. <laughs> Got the Duke. Now, well, we we dedicate this whole show to Vince with the raw bone and perhaps indeed. So why not get you in on the act? Major upset. Big Red defeats Austin Idol. Big Red was a morbidly obese African-American wrestler. He was not very good. He had some charisma. But to say the least, uh, this was not Austin Idol's uh, one shining moment, as they say in, in March Madness. Yeah, I don't think they're going to come on with Luther Vandross singing that on the on the background. I, wasn't his name Jerry Reese? And that was it. What, and once he once he had his little run on Georgia, he wasn't really heard from again, if I recall. I believe he became Voodoo Malumba as a Ooh. Kamala uh, the, knockoff in Southwest Championship Wrestling, or was it te- Texas All Star Wrestling by then? The the Dime Store Kamala. I, I'll put that on my business card. Yeah. Was that the was that the show that was on the uh, short lived Tempo cable network? It, it was, as a matter of fact. I never saw it. I never got Tempo, but I did read that. And yeah, Big Red as Voodoo Malumba was the original right. Botswana beast. Oh, there we go, the Botswana beast. I do remember that. I do remember <laughs> that gimmick. But wow, well, it's good to see that Big Red found employment after this. Uh, yeah, very good because what it, I mean, you got, he's got to do something. Uh, dream match in 1982. Stan Hansen fights Terry Gordy to a no contest. This is after a uh, long after actually the Freebirds had broken up and before they got back together. This is during the uh, the Gordy Snooker run, or just before that? I believe it's just after that. Just after that, Snooker's coming here after that. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's going to be a good match. It's two guys that aren't going to back down. You're going to have a good match. They're going to fight all over the place, and it buys time for the inevitable Freebird reunion, which I never saw as being inevitable. When it when it happened, I was absolutely shocked. It was a great angle, and Gordy and and Hayes just had that magic together, especially as baby faces, like summer of 1982. The interview that you and Jeff Bowden talked about with Michael Hayes with the what was his name Frumpy. The, the Michael Hayes frumpy interview. That is just, that is tremendous stuff and wears so well 40 years later. It, it, it's still just as great. Brad Brightsman made a good point that the interview goes a little bit long. Even with that said, it is one of the, the best single interviews I have ever seen in wrestling. I loved it. All right. We have a Texas death match where Buzz Sawyer defeats the legendary Mr. Wrestling two in a Texas death match. I'm sure there were some shenanigans, but I don't see what they were. But, I mean, a giant win for a yet-to-be-established Buzz Sawyer. Somebody really liked Buzz Sawyer for the next two years in Georgia. Yeah, and his name is Ollie. He, he, yeah, he didn't lose too often. And, and but, but, you know, I always like, for, for whatever people have said about the guy outside the ring, and I never met him, so it's not personal. At this particular time, he was tremendous. I mean, it, I remember, and John, you probably do too. You're you're much better on the dates than I am. Do you remember when he came to the WWF for what seemed to be like three weeks? I don't even think it was three weeks, but yeah, Bulldog he sh- Buzz Sawyer managed by Captain Lou Albano, and they had it, no plans on pushing him 
he went to a draw with Tony Garea, I think at the Boston Garden or somewhere where I saw him live, and very soon he was gone. But, I mean, he was not getting pushed. I mean, yeah, I watched it. He had a TV match, and, and if you didn't see the Georgia stuff, you would say, who is this little guy flying all over the place? And it, I always liked him. I could have done without his brother in the ring. But I, I thought I always thought Buzz Sawyer was amazing. I, I for whatever the uh, outside of the ring issues were, I, I loved I loved watching his stuff. It was it, it, it still wears well. I, I thought you know what though, like I think he got too big a push in '82 and especially 1983. I, I just didn't think his feet fit into those shoes. And Ole was going to make him the star in Georgia after he turned babyface, and that all fell apart quickly. But, I mean, you've got Hulk Hogan as the top guy on one channel and Buzz Sawyer as the top babyface on the other channel. You ain't thinking straight, Ole. Sorry. I would agree with that. I, I, I remember one time years ago, I mean, well, duh, years ago, Vince did an interview on Larry King that was shown locally. It wasn't on CNN. And people kept calling in and asking him about Ric Flair, Ric Flair, Ric Flair, Ric Flair. And Vince said, my guy's 6'8", 320. This guy's 6'1", 240. Who's bigger and badder? Now imagine that with a guy even shorter than Ric Flair, how that would look when you're comparing the two if, if Buzz Sawyer is your top star. And but I loved Buzz Sawyer's stuff with Dick Slater in Mid-South. Oh, same this. here. And then to me, that that's Buzz Sawyer... That's the best way to use Buzz Sawyer. Slater is your top heel and deserves to be. And Sawyer is kind of his understudy. And what were people, I'm curious, what were people saying about, you know, were they asking, do you think, were they asking Vince McMahon, do you think Ric Flair is better than Hulk Hogan? Or were they asking, hey, when are you going to bring in Ric Flair? It was a call-in show on home team sports, which is, um, the forerunner to the Bally sports and all that stuff. Now they showed the Orioles and the bullets and the wizards, but it's at certain times of the year they had, it was so primitive at the time is it didn't come on the air to like five o'clock in the afternoon. So they didn't had literally no programming uh, through, through some of the day. And for whatever reason, one night Larry King was there and they were taking phone calls and people kept calling in asking, about Ric Flair. When is Ric Flair going to wrestle Hulk Hogan? When are you going to treating it like at the time when there was only two organizations in boxing, treating it like the WBA and the WBC coming together for a unification bout? People were asking McMahon like that, and they probably asked him this five or six times. And he finally turns to Larry King, and Larry King says, Well, uh, why would you sign this guy? And he said, Well, you know, he's a champion of a very small regional promotion. My guy's six eight three twenty. He's six one six two two forty. Do the math. Oh my! We had something like that out here too. I mean, we still have it. It's called Nesson. But back when Nesson New England Sports Network first started, they came on at six o'clock at night, unless the Red Sox had a day game and all kinds of weird stuff when the Red Sox weren't on. But anyway, it's a big night for the Armstrongs. Bob and Brad Armstrong defeat the Funk brothers, Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr. I mean, Terry Funk is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Definitely top five. And talk about a guy who's just not afraid to do a job. No. Well, and I was just thinking, as you said that, how many times do you read 
except for maybe in their territory, the Funk Brothers, do they ever win a match when they're outside of Texas? I mean, so they're not afraid to lose. It's about entertainment, right? It's not about who's who's tougher and who's got a bigger ego. And and both Funk Brothers are willing to lie down, and you can't you have to give them all the credit in the world for that. Absolutely. I mean, I remember you know not to make it about my name dropping, but I got to hang out with Terry Funk and a couple of other people right after Halloween Havoc '89, and we all knew that Funk's match. Was his last match was going to be at the Clash of the Champions, and Terry's just sitting there laughing. He's like, "I literally have never won a match through my entire tour here that was not a TV squash." <laughs> he didn't care. Yeah, yeah. The the record books, the the, the mythical record book of Gorilla Monsoon is really not real. I hate to break it to you guys, there <laughs> is no magical record book that they were paying people out of. Yeah. Sorry to sorry to ruin Santa Claus for you. Well, and you know, the worst part is, and maybe it wouldn't have made a difference, but I mean, he was wrestling Sting in all the major arenas while Ric Flair was uh ready to make his comeback match at the 1989 Great American Bash. So you're having this national pay-per-view, and to me it makes sense. Terry Funk goes over Sting every night, and Sting just wouldn't do it. And Funk's like, all right, I'll do it. I don't care. Yeah, he did the same thing here in uh, at the Bash here in Washington. You would think that it just made sense, and that's not how it happened. Did you go to that show? I'll bet that was the day after the the Sunday Great American Bash. I was at yeah, I was I hit the, I think all three or four of the bashes that were at Capitol Center. I was at. Okay, the and you know not not well thought out in my opinion by the NWA. They basically had the same show the night before in Philadelphia. Then they have the bash. And then I'll bet they had the same show as the bash the next night in Washington. And Washington is not that far from Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny. They were only allowed into the Capitol center one show a year for the, they would be allowed to come in for the great American bash at that when they were Crockett promotions, they sold the bash out in 87 because it was the first time that McMahon ever let them in the building. And that was, uh, the 87 bash was a real experience. I've never been in a place, an arena that loud for when the main event started for when the road warriors came out that I thought I was standing beside a rocket engine. Yeah. I had the same experience in Boston. They, they, the building, it was actually the building that let the NWA come in once a year. And their first show was April, 1987. And they drew like 11,500 people. And, you know, 87 ravaged the NWA. The next show threw under 4,000. And, yeah, what can you do? But anyway, next match, Andre the Giant defeats Ricky Harris, better known as Black Bart. He was a sub for Assassin Number 1. Right around this time, Assassin Number 1, Mass Superstar, and the Super Destroyer had their own little heel click. And I thought it was pretty cool. I liked, I've always been a sucker for the Mass guys. The superstar and destroyer, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it. See other mask guys on the way. So I always, I'm always a sucker for those guys. So that, that's 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 pretty cool. I don't remember the assassin being part of that, but I'll take your word for it. No, it, superstar. Well, let me get to the next match. Tommy Rich and Bad Bad. Well, not no longer Bad Bad. Leroy Brown. Leroy Brown defeat the mass superstar and super destroyer. 
Yeah, it was sometimes it was almost like Assassin number one was the third wheel. Uh, Superstar and Super Destroyer were like the, the the main team here. I always got a kick out of watching Georgia wrestling when Leroy Brown was there because Gordon Soley always pronounced it Leroy Brown. Uh, he thinks Leroy Brown, good old Leroy Rochester was French. Um, Leroy bad, bad, Brown, bad Leroy Brown, Leroy Brown, Leroy Brown used to do a, you know, kind of a street guy from Chicago gimmick. He'd done it all along. And now all of a sudden in Georgia, he is a babyface construction worker. <laughs> uh, didn't he do a deal where he arm wrestled Ric Flair? He sure did, and uh, Rick does the insulting thing at the end when just cringeworthy when he puts a chauffeur's cap on his head after he and John Studd attack Leroy Brown. Leroy Brown. Leroy Brown. Uh, uh, Another expose of the wrestling business. Here's a guy twice the size of you. Hey, pal, let's arm wrestle. Good idea. Arm wrestling in pro wrestling, I mean, there was only one result, only one thing was ever going to happen, and the baby faces never wised up to it. Go figure that. Imagine that. The baby faces (laughs) were always stupid, John. I mean, what can I say? I was a 12-year-old heel fan. Same here. You guys can never figure this out. And and to think it got worse during the Nitro era. And anyway, um, January 3rd, 1982, let's go to the Greensboro Coliseum, where a young Terry Taylor defeats Jim Nelson, who would some uh, very soon find out that he was, in fact, a Russian named Boris Lukov. Wow. You know, sometimes in life, John, you just realize you forgot things. You, you just you go, fig- damn, I'm a Russian. And I'm named Boris. Go figure. And I have to shave my head. Well, that's a must, because if you're from Russia, you can't have hair. When Nikita Koloff started growing his out, he was from Lithuania by then. I think they weren't they billing him from Lithuania at some point right around then. Now that's crazy. Yeah, because that was about that was the time that the Soviet bloc was starting to fall apart. And Lithuania was the first part of the Soviet Union to try to maneuver away from it. So they were the little engine that could. And so Nikita Koloff, when he started growing his hair out, started dubbing himself from Lithuania. You know what? I had forgotten about that, but now I remember. So yeah, the soon-to-be Boris Zukov loses to a young Terry Taylor. Speaking of young, Buddy Landell, who at this point had a mane of dark brown hair, and Mike Davis, who hadn't figured out he was Dusty Rhodes yet, defeated Chris Markoff and Mike Miller. Mike Miller would go on to get a big push in Portland. But Mike Davis as Dusty Rhodes in Florida, one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen. I loved it. Unfortunately, it did not last. I have watched that numerous times on YouTube, and it cracks me up every time. It never fails. And like so many things in wrestling and in life, it was so good that somebody had to put the kibosh on it. Exactly. I'm, guess who that could have been? Why? You know what, though? I, I know. Who it's it probably could've his been. idea. I, well, he had just left for uh, the Carolinas. And so Dusty was basically gone, even though he still had points in the territory, I think. And I mean, I, you know what? Maybe Dusty just didn't have a sense of humor about you know, scrawny old Mike Davis dyeing his hair and 
and doing all of Dusty's mannerisms on TV with this big black X on his forehead. Well, and he, I think on YouTube they have one match of him as Dusty Rhodes, and he does the he does the flip flop and fly, and he does the flying elbow drop, and he's got the uh, the trunks that have the embroidered stardust on it. It's tremendous. Uh, if if people today went into such detail on these t- things in the HD age, my God, it would it would look so awesome. But, but it, is, it is hilarious. I highly recommend you finding it if you haven't seen it yet. You know, I forgot one of the Atlanta matches. Uh, Dick Slater defeats the great Kabuki. Um, Kabuki was over like crazy in, in Georgia at that point. Now in Greensboro, we have the Ninja defeating Johnny Weaver. And the Ninja totally stole Kabuki's gimmick, as did Kendo Nagasaki, as did whoever else I'm forgetting. If I'm Kabuki, I'm pissed. And, and and wasn't Kabuki uh, the magic dragon who was the fellow that died in the airplane crash? Uh, no, that was uh, Haru Sonoda was the magic dragon. Uh, okay, okay. I was Because I have no idea who the ninja is. Just another uh, theft of a, of a gimmick that worked for one guy and not for anybody else. I don't remember who the ninja was, but I, I mean, like you said, it was just a generic guy out stealing the gimmick. But anyway. Ray Stevens defeats Ole Anderson in a Texas street fight. Gene Anderson was handcuffed to the ring. Oh my God! What if there was a fire? Yes, you you would have would be poor Gene Anderson. But Ole is Gene's, you know, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. I like to think Ole would have stuck with Gene till the end. I he would, would have think so the, too. The, the place would have burned down around them because of the Anderson family such a such a bond. <laughs> Even though Ole wound up dumping his other brother and would later dump his cousin, nephew, whatever they would call Arn this week. I myself, I watched some of those Gene Anderson interviews when, from the Mid-Atlantic days on the various shows that you could find. And it's, it's cringeworthy to watch that stuff. I, feel, I, I watch that stuff and I feel bad. Yeah. I feel bad for the guy. I'm like, who the hell thought this was a good idea? I know he's a heel what? and he's always been a heel in the area. He's got the background, but... When when people watch this, are they see this shaking? And he wasn't necessarily old, 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 but an older gentleman who's clearly got tremors. And I felt bad for the guy, and it was forty years old. I mean, and I generally don't me, feel bad for people, John. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Gene Anderson on Georgia. Now, granted, I have this weird thing where if I see someone like kind of fade off and become a color commentator or a manager. I put the the rubber stamp on your forehead. You are old. And I knew Gene was a manager in mid Atlantic before this. And when he came out and he was wrestling with Ole in Georgia, I'm like, okay, this guy is old. And I also remember in 84, this was a, after Vince knocked Ole out of his six Oh five spot. And they were on at Like, I don't know, seven in the morning. And they brought out Gene Anderson as a surprise tag team partner of Ole. I mean, it, it looked like they dug this guy out of a grave, man. It was bad. Well, you know, I, I guess Martin Van Buren wasn't available for the role, so they give him give Gene Anderson a call. <laughs> All right, uh, let me see. So then we have Roddy Piper defeating Ricky Steamboat. Here is a match that I would have loved to see. Uh, Piper is still 
totally in a heel role that wouldn't last through the year of 1982. But even I kind of knew, Sean, that Roddy Piper had done this before. He was the, a heel in Los Angeles. I think he turned babyface before he left. Then he went up to Portland as a heel, and he turned babyface before he left. And I, I kind of knew Roddy Piper was going to turn. I knew he was going to turn in the WWF, too. The only surprising thing in hindsight from when we were watching this stuff in real time compared to now about Roddy Piper and this whole thing is that the stab to the chest where he's running around where it looked like he took a piece of duct tape and that turned out to be real. I mean, even then I'm going like, really, this is how they're going to do this. And that part turned out to be real. Yeah. I would have, I would have bet my baseball card collection in 1982 that it wasn't real. No, you know what? I I don't know what I thought of it, but I knew that wrestlers getting attacked by fans before I even got the observer or anything. Like I did know that was a real thing. So I I think I more believed it than not believed it. Well, my my problem with it was well, it's like anything else. Guys get you know, in the, in all sorts of sports, stuff that happens outside the arena, like the Eddie Wakeus thing and, and all that. But the way they described it was Roddy Piper walking down the street and he saw a young child being, and he jumped in courageously and like that kind of set it off. I go like, okay, we're going over the top here. I, it probably didn't happen that way. Like, well, you've done other shows on the after stuff, but you know how over the top that stuff was that you go like, even then you're, you're reading this stuff going really, you know, but, that that's why I didn't really buy it. I think, oh, well, this is how they were going to turn him, which makes sense because of all the reasons you said before. But then then I find out years and years later that yeah, there actually was an attack and that they had to do it because he was just just too hated outside of the ring. The guy couldn't wasn't safe, so they had to do it. Yeah, and and the time had come to him. I mean, Piper had been in uh, Mid Atlantic since the end of 1980. He was in Georgia. I want to say summer or early fall of 19. 19- 81 and i absolutely loved piper's georgia turn where you know i mean he piper's the bad guy but he does commentary with gordon Soley, and he's always respectful to gordon Soley, even though he's a heel and then when morocco starts pushing uh Soli around uh, piper comes to the rescue i always thought that was really good two of my all-time favorites and the thing that i love best about that is when you watch it now you see morocco moving at like the pace of a glacier and he'll take like take a step and he'll drag the podium behind him and gordon soley will take two steps and then morocco takes a really slow step and he drags them <laughs> just so when piper hits him they can knock the podium over yeah and piper at first of course is just trying to break it up and morocco won't hear about it and then he takes a swing at piper and piper just goes nuts on him i loved it Black and i loved roddy piper's sports coats those yes. sports coats he wore, the checkered, it looked like literally like 1977 JCPenney's at, at an outlet store. They were <laughs> awesome. I loved them. I, I mean, I get it. They were great for a heel. Flair had them too. But in 1981, ladies and gentlemen, those suits were out. And Flair and Piper just did not care. All right. Blackjack Mulligan fights Sergeant Slaughter, who I think was still the United I'm pretty sure still the United States champion. To a double disqualification at the 16-minute mark, Mulligan, I, I liked him, but by this point, his best days were long behind him. Yeah, see, and, and 
when I remember seeing Blackjack Mulligan, I always, you hear stories of him being this dynamic working big man. And not, he wasn't quite as agile as Barry Windham, but for a big guy, he could do lots of stuff. By the time I got to see him, he was basically like John Studd, very slow, one-dimensional, kind of plodding. I mean, he, he would brawl with you, but you know, the guy that's often described by the people that saw him in the 70s was not the guy that you and I saw in the 80s. I agreed 100%, and by the very soon, he would wind up in the WWF, and I remember just, you know, I knew who Blackjack Mulligan was. I, I had seen him in Georgia. And he shows up in, in the WWF with Fred Blassie as his manager and just this crazy perm that he had kind of dyed red. I was like, Blackjack, what is going on with you? Yeah, that was that was not, that was not the most uh, – maybe somebody told him he was originally going to be Irish Blackjack Mullies. There you go. Uh, and now we're talking about Prime Sergeant Slaughter here. He's coming up off of his WWF run where that character had made its debut and it's moved on to its second territory and it's proven this is going to work anywhere. So do you remember, John, and sometimes I don't always remember these things perfectly. The first time that he showed up in the WWF, they called him Sergeant Bob Slaughter for like the first show or two that he was on Championship Wrestling or All-Star, whichever one you got. They called him Sergeant Bob Slaughter, and that quickly changed to just Sergeant Slaughter. If I recall correctly, he debuted on the WOR show the week after they had the August 9th uh, Bruno Sammartino versus Larry Zabisco match at Chase Stadium. And I don't remember them calling him Sergeant Bob Slaughter. I, I think, if I recall correctly, it was just Sergeant Slaughter the whole time. I could be wrong. I could, I could be as well. I mean, I, that's literally in 40 something years. And cause Pat Patterson had a weird way of announcing sometimes. Like I remember he would call, sometimes he'd be in the middle of a match. He'd call uh Baron Mikel Cicluna, Mike Cicluna. And I'd remember, you know, hey, oh, did you hear that? There's an inside thing. His name must really be Mike, you know, like really clever stuff from a, from a 12 year old. But I, I do seem to remember him calling him Bob Slaughter for like one or two times and it kind of went away. But, it just I, I thought Slaughter was so awesome because I'd never heard of the guy when he first came here. Uh, he had been, what, Super Destroyer, Mark, whichever one he was for, in, for Vern, right? And it was like, who is this guy? And you could see clearly that the gimmick was going to work, and th this guy was a bumping machine before we knew the term bumping machine. Yeah, it's funny that the WWF would just create their own characters and give the main event pushes like Sergeant Slaughter, Hulk Hogan, Brutus Beefcake. I mean, very rarely did another promotion do that. You know, you worked at Gimmick Out in Memphis or Portland before we we do it out here. Yes, I mean, it, it, but but they they would the Slaughter thing worked so well because he had instant heat. I mean. What was screaming Gomer at him, and and it, it, he would sell it so well. I mean, it, and then he goes to Crockett and has the you watch the Mid Atlantic stuff of that time, and down there he has an even more sinister bent to him. Where as good of a heel as he was here during the first run with the Grand Wizard, there was a little bit of cartoon to him. Yeah, you didn't have that in the Mid Atlantic. No, you didn't. I thought I thought the character was way more effective. In mid-Atlantic, he just came across as this really sinister heel. And like you said, 
not a cartoon. The main event is Ric Flair defending the NWA Championship against Big John Studd. Flair beats him at the 27-minute mark uh, during a no-DQ match. I guess the big question, could even Ric Flair get a decent match out of Big John Studd? I'm just, I'm reading this when you sent this to me yesterday. I'm trying to imagine this match, and I'm thinking he probably worked with John Studd very similar to the El Gigante matches where you're bouncing off John Studd and you're letting John Studd do a lot of the stuff on the ropes where Studd likes to drop the ha- drop the hammer forearm. and all. That's probably the only way you're going to get a decent match out of John Studd. Yeah, you know, Studd, I saw him in Georgia before he came to the WWF, and he really didn't stand out as unbelievably bad when I saw him in Georgia. But when he was in the WWF, he was one of the first wrestlers, and we're talking a handful of wrestlers by this point, that I knew just was not good. It didn't take a lot. We would see big guys here, but you could tell that there was a difference between a really bad big guy and a a big guy. And Stud just always looked at you. You didn't necessarily know how to term it or how to say it, but you could tell he was not good. No, I, you know what? It was almost like watching a, a New York Giants game from like 1989 or 1990. It's, it's, it's not, they're not that entertaining on offense, but they're going to win the game. Yeah. I mean, Jeff Craney wasn't going to beat John Studd. No, he was. A, it didn't take a genius to figure out that John Studd was where he was headed. He was going to get his title shots here and there. He'd do, a, do the obligatory thing against Andre and. Well, that's that's what he was there for. And we will wrap up this week's Sick to Wrestling by doing talking about a show that took place in Seattle, in what's known as traditionally the Portland Territory. They did Seattle as well. The opener, Billy Whitecloud, defeats Dizzy Hogan by disqualification. Sean, this Dizzy Hogan guy looks familiar. He does. I think he uh, he may be related to Eddie Boulder. And, I think uh, he might be Eddie Boulder. Uh, he could very well be. And it has something to do with cheesecake, I think. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's hard to believe that he managed to get around to all these places when he clearly wasn't that good. I don't really understand that. But, you know, I, I'm not familiar with Billy White Cloud, though. Uh, I've seen him on TV. I've seen him in Portland. I mean, really, he's another guy doing the generic Indian gimmick. But Dizzy Hogan, of course, is best known as Brutus Beefcake. When he was in Portland, he he would get on TV and brag about being the brother of Hulk Hogan, who was the star in Rocky III. Oh, well, then it must have been true. I I remember, like, the urban legends they would talk about wrestling in when I was in high school around this time. And they would say Hulk Hogan is really Brutus Beefcake's brother. And, uh... The same, like an offshoot of what eventually came, the Ultimate Warrior was killed by Pop Rocks or whatever. It was, it was that type of thing that that people, I guess, because they were really best friends and you know stuff like that starts somewhere, right? But yeah, we uh, had the same rumor going around the Boston Garden that Bruce Beefcake and Hulk Hogan were really brothers. Probably because they were best friends and didn't do anything and, and constantly were together outside of the ring. People would see them, you know, so. That made it made sense why people would think that, but it's it's funny in in the days that you didn't have all of that inside information, you still had rumors and 
at least half the time they were right, or at least on the right sometimes, track, I should say. Yeah, sometimes they were right. And plus, there's always that guy who visited his relatives out in Seattle or something and sees this guy on TV saying, Hey, I'm Hulk Hogan's brother. And it's like, and he believes it. And why not? I mean, you know, we, I mean, we all believe that the Valiant brothers were brothers, right? Well, just in, in your show last week with Jeff Bauer, where you guys were talking, you know, uh, cable television killed the uh, territory business. Because if you were living in one territory and you didn't read the wrestling magazines and all of a sudden you were dropped into another and happened to see wrestling, it had to be like he dropped you in on the moon. It's like, wait a second. This guy here was a bad guy here, and this guy says he's this guy's buddy. And if you didn't read the wrestling magazines and know what was going on in other parts of the country, it you might as well just I, – I can't imagine the confusion that you would have. No, I agree with that. I mean, we were just talking about Blackjack Mulligan, and it's like, okay, Blackjack has been a good guy for four years now, and he's back in the WWF, and he's a bad guy, and he just learned how to roll with it. That's the best way I can put well, it. Well, remember when – I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say real no, quick I, I about Blackjack. I hear what you have to say. Do you remember when he was here doing the Mulligan's barbecue bit, and all of a sudden oh, yeah. he shows up on ESPN on World Class as a heel? wearing that same SMU Mustang shirt that's like three sizes too small for him. And he's calling Bruiser Brody everything from a skunky polecat all the way to a guy that goes to the bathroom behind the barn. And Bruiser Brody comes out, and they clearly, like, blade each other. And it, it is, it's just schlocky and awful. But we have been, you know, here was good old Blackjack with Earlene Smithers two weeks ago, and now he's on. <laughs> it's just funny how it works. But in the era of cable, it was so much more visible that these, yeah. You know, oh, he was a good guy here. Well, he's a bad guy here. It's it just, I always thought that if you watch that stuff, it had to be kind of jarring if you really were in the, in the world of true belief, I should say. Well, I, the way I rolled with it, guys like Blackjack Mulligan, uh, Dick Slater, etc. Just sometimes they were good guys and sometimes they were bad guys. That's, I mean, that's just the way I broke it down. They were the, the tweeners of their time. There you go. <laughs> All right. Next match, Chung Lee versus Stan Stasiak goes to a time limit draw. Stan Stasiak was at the very end of his career. I mean, I remember watching some old Portland wrestling and the announcer, Don Koss, is saying, you know, Hey, Stan's near the end of his career, and boy, you know, he's a great guy, and if you need a salesman or a spokesperson or something, contact Stan. <laughs> like, oh my God. When I got into wrestling, Stan Stasiak was literally a guy that was pictured as former WWF champion. He had already had his time here, but he looked in the pictures like somebody that would be a mortician. He had that short, like, squat head. He kind of looked like the guys, John, in like the late 60s baseball cards where the guys all had buzz cuts and didn't wear hats. It, it looked like he was 100 years old. He had this slick back look like he looked like anything but a professional wrestler from the pictures that were shown. So I don't really have a lot of knowledge of watching Stan Stasiak, but those pictures, he looked like the heel villain on Scooby-Doo that was had the mask ripped off of him at the end of the show. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I my understanding was Stan was a lot better in the 60s and early 70s than he was when, you know, when there was videotape available of him. But, you know, I, I don't know how old he was at this point. I'm sure I'm guessing right around 50. And yeah, his time had come. Rip Oliver 
uh, defeats Terry Fargo. Rip Oliver had been wrestling in Florida as an underneath guy before this, and pretty soon he would be getting a big push in Portland. As part of his own heel faction, right? Eventually, yes. Yes, and he was, was it Rip Oliver to turn Buddy Rose face? Um, it was Rip Oliver, Dynamite Kid, and one other heel that turned, I'm trying to remember who the heel was, and I can't, but it was Rip Oliver and Dynamite Kid. Yep, I, I, I do remember that. And I remember Rip Oliver also had a brief run in world class with uh, Jim Cornette, of all people. Yeah, Rip Oliver and Billy Jack Haynes arrive Jack in world Haynes. class together, and they wind up having a feud. And yeah, one of the rare single wrestlers, I can't think of another single wrestler Jim Cornette managed after Rip Oliver until he you know, left the NWA and wound up managing Stan Lane as a single in like 91. Yeah, I think I, I think you would be right. I think that's I think that's dead on because it, the only Murdoch. ones I can think of would be the oh yes the 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 the, the brief Dick Murdoch run where uh, he kicked back and went on the kicked his boots back and listened to George Jones on Dick Murdoch's ranch. I, I remember that distinctly. <laughs> uh, that was a a pairing that should have gone on forever, and I've I've talked about that on this show. Gene Kaniski, oh my, Gene Kaniski is so old at this point. Defeats Iceman, not Iceman King Parsons yet, just King Parsons. Iceman King Parsons had a bright future coming up. We just didn't know about it yet. He did not have that hairstyle yet. Well, and Gene Kaniski, another graduate of the Stan Stasiak school of I got my hair combed with shellac. Uh, Maybe it's just a thing about Portland that they were going with the old school the old school veterans that could be counted on to notch a victory here or two. Because I never got the Gene Kaniski thing either. I mean, this is well, well, well past his prime, Gene Kaniski. And I always liked Iceman King Parsons. I thought he was hilarious as a heel in the UWF. I thought he was hilarious calling Chris Adams a jailbird. Now, you know what? Kaniski was probably, you know what? He lived in Vancouver. I think he's Vancouver, Washington. So he's driving distance. Why not bring in? legend for just one match on the show, but yeah, he was old. Anyway, Matt Bourne defeats Rocky Johnson. Uh, Rocky would, by the end of the year, would go on to the WWF. Rocky Johnson was in a weird part of his career here because I acknowledged him as an absolute top star in, you know, he was a top star in Houston, a top star in Florida, a top star in Mid-Atlantic, and here he is in Portland I liked Portland, especially during this era we're talking about right now. The show took place January 13th, 1982. But it just felt like Rocky Johnson should have been in a more major territory at this point. Maybe it was uh, a convenient vacation place with uh, his wife being from Hawaii. That would be a convenient spot to get there quicker. Good point. Outside of that, I got nothing. No, you know what? That I've never thought of that before. That might really be the reason. Then, hey, let's, you know, work full time, but be a little bit closer to home, at least for a little while. And in the main event, Brett Sawyer defeated Playboy Buddy Rose. Um, Brett Sawyer, I've seen the Portland from this era. He really has the look of an up and coming star, the next big thing to come out of Portland. And it more or less happened for him in 1983 in Atlanta. 
Yeah, and I guess earlier in the show, I told you how much I hated Brett Sawyer, so that works out. Uh, <laughs> I just never really saw it myself. I mean, solid, smaller territory, baby face, top guy maybe in a Portland. Never really saw the Georgia push. And outside of that, he never got another one. No, when they... Uh, I mean, he got the big push in late 83, early 84 in Georgia, wound up getting fired. And then when JCP took over and they kept him as, you know, Brett Sawyer's little brother. I mean, talk about being given a little, a defenseless little brother role. And I think he wrestled real briefly for Watts. I seem to remember him being on a couple shows. And he he lost, I believe. I feel like I remember him wrestling Jack Victory or something on a TV show. But I, I just I just never saw it. That just maybe that was just me. Of course, what do I know? I'm the guy that liked Rod Price better than Steve Austin. What the hell do I know? <laughs> Rod Price looked like he had a bright future, even though I never liked him better than Steve Austin. I, I agree with you about Brett Sawyer in Portland. Him, you know, being the champion, being the the. You know, he was a good-looking guy when he could keep his weight down. You know, him getting that push in Portland made sense, but I agree yes. that he always felt overpushed in Georgia. Yep, and I mean, water finds its level, right? And yeah, to be the top guy in Portland is a different deal than being a top guy in Georgia on national television. And what felt perfectly fine in one uh, territory can be perfectly overpushed in another. Yeah, and I was fine with Brett Sawyer getting his initial push in Georgia. Kind of, you know, a, a, a middle-of-the-card guy. But when they tried to make him the national heavyweight champion, I mean, to, to me, it, it felt like, you know, I'd seen that belt on Mass Superstar, on, you know, uh, Prime Tommy Rich, on Mr. Wrestling 2. And to Paul me, this, this guy just didn't fit in. Yeah, and one of these things don't look like the other, like on Sesame Street. Exactly. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. I always hope everyone enjoys the show because we're going to going to be back next week doing pretty much the same thing with the other territories. January 1982. It's going to be Sean and I doing it again. Sean, there's one thing I want to say before we go off the air that I almost never say this. I rarely say it. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. Go Georgia. I do not want Alabama to win another national championship on Monday night. Go Georgia, Kirby Smart, figure out a way to beat Nick Saban because you ain't done it yet. Go dogs. All right. And with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lightning, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go dogs. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.